So I think it's um, become clear from what we've been saying so far that, yeah, in a way, what distinguishes mindfulness from you know, other forms of maybe training our attention is its um, particular uh, attitudes and uh, ethos. So um, we've been, Martine was speaking about this careful and caring attention. And this is what I want to talk about tonight is a certain attitude in practice. So mindfulness is, is uh, often spoke about as being a non-judgmental awareness. And maybe other ways we could characterize it are as uh, maybe respectful and non-harming and friendly or even actually befriending which to me more than friendly suggests a kind of willingness to move towards experience. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean the same as liking what's happening. It's just a willingness to, um, to turn towards things rather than away from them. So Christina Feldman uh, gave a definition of mindfulness recently, which she said it's the willingness and capacity to be equally near all events and experiences with kindness, curiosity and discernment. So non-judgment non doesn't mean uh, dropping all discernment. We don't go into some kind of gooey uh, state of non-discrimination, but um, it's a discernment that isn't, isn't critical in that way. And I really, really like this sense of uh, caring and careful. And um, Martin's spoken about uh, mindfulness being a translation that came from the Bible for this word sati, which means remembering, remembering to be present. But there's also another Pali word that's equally uh, translated by, also translated as mindfulness, and that's apamada. And a is a, a negative prefix. So it means not pamada, and pamada means carelessness. And so the opposite of carelessness, obviously, is caring or careful. And we've been also talking about how we develop this kind of um, caring attention, this caring and careful mindfulness through these practices of samatha and vipassana, of uh, gathering and collecting, stabilizing the mind around an anchor or an object, and also of experiential inquiry or clear seeing. And sometimes, you know, in our practice, and this might have been happening for you, we can sort of think, well, what should I be doing now? Should I be inquiring experientially into this, or should I be, you know, focusing on trying to calm and steady and collect my mind? And this even goes into, you know, controversies in the way that different schools teach about how much calming do you need to do before you can start seeing things clearly or can you start investigating before you've really built a, a very high level of steadiness in the mind. And there can be really quite strong arguments about this. So one person who found himself, you know, um, facing some of these arguments as a... Um, an English monk who's been a monk for many decades, Ajahn Brahm, who is the abbot of a community in Australia. And I heard him tell a story which kind of appealed to me related to this question of what, which do we do first. So he said it's as if there's this mountain, Nirvana Mountain, and a couple who are walking up the mountain. This couple is... Sam Atta and his partner Vai Pasana, and together they're climbing Nirvana Mountain. And Sam Atta has this kind of very, um, he's the sort of person who likes to just diligently plod up the mountain in a very laid back, 
peaceful kind of way and just steadily putting one foot behind the other. And Vi likes to stop and look at the views and kind of check out what's going on. But sometimes um, it, Sam actually decides that he needs to wait for Vi. And uh, sometimes uh, Vi kind of catches up with Sam. And they always arrive at the top of the mountain together. They never, uh, one never rise, and whatever they're doing on the way up, they always arrive at the same time. And then he said, actually, they never get to the top of the mountain alone because there's someone else who always comes with them. And that's their beloved and faithful dog, whose name is Meta. <laughs> so Meta is the Pali word for this quality of friendliness. And I kind of want to bring this, this piece into the picture this evening. So metta um, gets translated as loving kindness or um, another translation that I like is goodwill so, um, or friendliness. And this more than being just a feeling that comes up, this is a whole orientation and attitude towards experience. Sometimes it will be accompanied by loving feelings, warm feelings, and sometimes it's not, but it's a, it's a basic kind of um, attitude of mind. And I've been told that the word metta is, uh, comes from a word that means plump or juicy. So it's as if you have a plump or juicy heart. And most traditionally, there's the image of a mother looking after her child, which is used to describe metta. So it's said that even as a mother will protect with her life her child, uh, so with a boundless heart should one cultivate this metta or friendliness towards all living beings. And the sense of a mother and a child is interesting to me because the mother's um, attitude to the child is one of protection. So metta has this quality of protective caring. And also perhaps we can think how often mothers really rise up and they will still be caring and protective towards a child even if the child is being you know, somewhat irritating or not particularly um, lovable in that moment. So the, the analogy works well in that way. But then it also kind of breaks down at a certain point because one of the things about mother love normally is that it's, it's, um, it's very particular. You know, it's preferential. So we look after our own child rather than the other children. So I think this, this sense of the quality of protective caring, of really selfless caring, um, is there, but also that actually metta is something that is not preferential, that it extends in all directions. So it's also described as a, as a boundless quality. It's uh, the quality of an uncontracted heart, an expansive quality. So it's said that you abide pervading in all directions, above and below and around and everywhere to all beings equally as to yourself uh, with a mind that's free from hatred and ill will. And this is called a sublime abiding. So the word in Pali is a vihara. And a vihara is a dwelling place. So a monastery or a dormitory is known as a vihara. And a dwelling place is somewhere that we inhabit so also thinking of this, as somebody asked yesterday evening about um, habits. And a habit, it's like the word habitat, comes from also where we live. So a habit is where the mind lives, or makes its home. So it's actually something that we, that we can cultivate as a kind of um, a habitual ab abiding of the mind and the heart. It's said that whatever we frequently um, ponder and think upon, 
what we dwell on with our mind. That, in that way, does the mind incline. So we can develop a mind that inclines to this kind of abiding place. And it's a sublime, it's said to be the highest abiding. And I've already said, you know, that it is different from the very um, selective, preferential kind of love. So we also talked last night about you know, bringing to mind the, the sense of one's beloved and how that can go in one of two directions. It can go in the sense of kind of possessiveness and, and jealousy and attachment and actually lead to suffering. Or it can go in the direction of actually really contacting this quality of love in the heart and, and directing that beyond to, um, to other beings. So this sense of possessiveness or attachment is sometimes called the near enemy of metta, or the near opposite. And then the far opposite would be the sense of um, aversion or ill will. And interestingly, another far opposite is fear, which kind of surprised me when I first encountered that. But if we think about it, the, the uncontracted heart is actually a fearless heart. And there is something kind of fearless about the practice of mindfulness, about the willingness to, um, to be near experience, even experience that's challenging and difficult. So, in fact, metta was first taught by the Buddha, I think, or it was famously taught by the Buddha as an antidote to fear when a bunch of monks were living in the forest and uh, they were afraid of the wild animals and the, the tree spirits that they, they believed were living in the forest. And so he taught them to practice loving kindness. And then there's also a story of how the Buddha himself used it to tame a a wild elephant, a bull elephant, that somebody had got intoxicated in order to try to kill the Buddha. And they, they drove this intoxicated bull elephant into where, near the, where the Buddha was living. And the Buddha actually used the power of his loving kindness to tame this bull elephant. We can sort of th see that in, in um, stories and myths like Beauty and the Beast. You know, how we can, uh, something that's actually frightening, we can, uh, we can change, it morphs, it changes as we change our relationship to it. But I've also experimented doing this myself with like dogs that have been barking at me and running at me. And I'm afraid if you don't, if you don't have it kind of mastered, it doesn't work. You can't, you can't fake it. <laughs> so I've, I've been bitten. <laughs> trying to practice metta to a dog. But uh, I think if one really has it sussed, I mean, we can think of all these you know, great beings who have had these incredible abilities to befriend animals and so on. So uh, this approach of um, friendliness, of a, of a boundless, uncontracted heart, is a kind of ground out of which we can meet experience. And then um, when we meet different kinds of experience, it takes on a different color or different flavor. So when, um, when friendliness actually meets, um, meets uh, somebody experiencing good fortune or something um, to be pleased about, then it becomes appreciative joy delighting in good fortune either of other people or of oneself say and then when it contacts difficulty or struggling it becomes compassion and when it encounters uh, circumstances that can't be um, that there's nothing further to be done about then it it becomes equanimity and equanimity is not a kind of cold uh, detached equanimity but an equanimity that's kind of responsive and available and this equanimity also keeps keeps our compassion and our appreciation in bounds so that we don't become really carried away in, by uh, excessive merriment and excitement or overwhelmed by suffering and sorrow but I just really tonight I, I just want to focus on loving kindness and compassion as the meta and 
compassion, karuna, because these are these are the two things that are really present in this flavor of kindness. So one Burmese teacher said that compassion is what arises when the sunshine of metta comes into contact with the raindrops of, of suffering. The rainbow of compassion arises. And compassion is the wish to soothe and alleviate suffering. So it has a really responsive component to it. And I think it's really, really, um, for me, it's been really important to, it is really important to remember that this whole path of practice really arose as a response to, to suffering and to distress. This is this, the reason that the Buddha stepped forward and taught any of this was because he saw people struggling and he wanted to respond and he wanted to help. And we can get I, especially at the beginning, I really was. I really heard it as a sort of admonishment to do something right, and I think the the, the word enlightenment has maybe, you know, it's another questionable translation because especially when I first came across Buddhism when I was a teenager and a student and very um, at a point in my life where I was really trying to find answers to everything, there was a sense that. You know, if I just found the right ideas, then some cosmic light bulb would come on and uh, all problems will be solved. And as Martine was saying yesterday, I too could go and save the world, you know, but from having got the right idea. And slowly, slowly over time, realizing that it's not about that. It's about uh, a much more um, subtle, ongoing transformation of the heart rather than just getting some right idea. So this Samatha and Vipassana, Sam and Vai, climbing Nirvana Mountain, in a way, this might be stretching the image too far, but I sort of think, well, why, why did, what even got them out of the door and out for a walk in the first place? You know, actually Metta, you know, was saying, let's go, let's go. <laughs> let's go out for a walk and let's walk up this mountain. So compassion has a really beautiful archetype, which we have a, an image here of Kuan Yin, who is the Chinese um, archetype for, or the archetype from Chinese Buddhism for, for compassion. And Kuan Yin means one who listens to the sounds of the world at ease. And I think that the Kuan in Chinese actually means care or caring. So somebody who cares about the suffering of the world. And in many, in many pictures, she is depicted in, the, in Chinese and Tibetan tradition as having a thousand hands and a thousand eyes. And, and in each, the palm of each hand is, a, is an eye. And also she carries all these different implements to, with which to respond to the world. So it's someone who listens and listens with the wisdom or equanimity. So she, she listens to the sounds of the world at ease. And this comes from having this clear seeing, this, uh, this equanimity and this clear seeing that we're also developing of actually being able to hold all things in perspective and to see, uh, see reality as it is. So the, the whole flavor of listening and inner listening, I think, is really um, important in this practice and can be a practice in itself. And it's a listening with the heart as well as the ears. So Ajahn Chah, who's my teacher's teacher, famously said, use your heart to listen to this teaching, not your ears. Deep listening is very, is very powerful. And uh, I, found, I found a quote from Mother Teresa, which I like and won't speak to everyone, but it might speak to you here. So she was being asked about prayer. And somebody, an interviewer, asked her, what did she say to God when she prayed? And she said, I don't say anything. I just listen. And so the interviewer asked her, well, what does God say to you? 
And she said, he doesn't say anything, he just listens. <laughs> and then she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't help you. Or I can't explain it. So maybe it's not something we can explain, but it might touch you in a way. So how do we bring this sense of kindness into our practice of mindfulness? Or how do, we, how do we relate to our experience when we're practicing mindfulness with this flavor? And I think this, this ability to come back again and again to the whole of our experience um, is an act of kindness. You know, we do this with an attitude of non-fighting of non-contention and willingness to allow things to be just as they are and to welcome them into our hearts and this includes our thoughts our moods our body sensations and feelings that are both pleasant and unpleasant and this is a form of creative response i think the practice of practice of metta or kindness is one way in which we can creatively respond to conditions. Somebody pointed out to me that creative is actually the same word as reactive. It's just that the sea has moved to a different place. And the sea, we could think of it as standing for curiosity. So if we find ourselves reacting to something, if we can bring some curiosity some friendly curiosity to that we can move towards a creative response and out of out of the reactivity and then this this mind becomes or the mind of loving kindness and harmlessness it becomes a kind of safe container in which all these other um, difficult mind states can be contemplated and transformed so our ill will or our aversion or our fear or anxiety. And Pema Chodron spoke of it as being metta, as being an unconditional sense of humor, which I like. You know, can we meet these mind states with an unconditional sense of humor that doesn't need to make them into a problem? Um, one perspective that I think can really, really help with this, and we were speaking about this in, in a group yesterday, is to really understand that everything that's happening is a process in nature. You know, it's not my personal problem. And it's much easier to do this with things that are going in the body over which we, don't ha we have a sense that we don't have any control. So if you've had an accident, for example, and injured yourself, there's a degree of kind of acceptance and patience around those conditions that's usually available to us. Whereas if it's some kind of piece of emotional suffering or, or um, story, we can really quickly get into this sense of blaming myself for being a mess or that there's something that I'm doing wrong that's creating this. But if we can really orient ourselves to the, the fact that the, the mind and the, the thoughts and things are, they, they too are conditions in nature that are unfolding according to prior causes and conditions. Can we take it a little less personally? Yeah. And this is actually, you know, what's meant by wise understanding or, or right view. Can we befriend what's arising? So I've got a, another story about uh, befriending what's arising that a friend just shared with me. That a, a man was in a supermarket, uh, going around at the end of the day, doing his shopping. And he noticed in the aisle a, a mother with a daughter who was about three or four sitting in the shopping trolley. And they were going past the cereal packets and the daughter was kind of having a bit of a tantrum and kind of pulling cereal packets off the shelves and wanting this and that. And then the mother was patiently putting them back. And she said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. We'll be home soon. And then 
they went he went round to the next aisle and the mother and daughter were in front of in front of him again and this time it was the crisp packets and the biscuits and things and the little girl was having you know crying and saying I want this and I want that and and uh, and the mother was saying there there Monica don't cry we'll be home soon and then round to the next aisle and it was the cheeses and the yogurts and things and again it's like you know she was she was fretting and uh, kind of pulling at things on the shelves and so on and the mother goes there there Monica don't cry we'll be home soon and then he got to the to the till to the checkout and he found that he was actually waiting in line behind um, the little girl and her mother and he thought he was feeling a lot of real sense of kind of compassion for the mother came up and and thought this must be really difficult for you and um, I wanted to say something nice to kind of help the situation so he said oh Monica she's a, she's a really sweet girl isn't she and and the mother said, that's not Monica, I'm Monica. <laughs> and his response was a bit like, he was, oh. <laughs> you know, because, so I tell, I tell this story just because um, it's so normal for us to, to kind of do it, relate in this way to other people. And it's so counterintuitive and countercultural to relate in this way to ourselves and I really um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that now because when we practice you know we notice all this experience happening these things arising in experience but it's also true that most of the time there's a sense of an experiencer here as well so we might have moments where we feel totally at one with our experience. But you know, as Martine said yesterday, well, I, I know that I exist, I'm, I'm here. So we, do, we, we experience ourselves. And so this attitude of mind, of kindness and compassion, actually, it's not just for other people, it's not just for the things that are happening, but actually part of our practice can be to apply this to ourselves. And the Buddha actually said, you know, in the in the, the formulations that I've said so far, is that, that this this attitude is to be developed equally to all beings as to oneself, with no distinction. And he even went as far as to say that in the whole world, there's no one who's more worthy of your kindness no one dearer to, to us than ourselves. And this wasn't a criticism saying you shouldn't be so self-centered. This is just what it is, you know. And in a way, genuine kindness to other people isn't really possible without kindness to ourselves. So we were talking about um, anatta and... Uh, well, not anatta, we were talking, I don't know if we used the word anatta, but this, this process of selfing and how this is something that we layer onto, onto our thinking. So thinking's happening and then we put this self story on top of it. And I, had, I was walking around the lanes this morning and I had a kind of deja vu because I lived in Devon for a year as a, as a nun about 17 years ago and uh, walked around lanes very similar to this. And as I was walking around the lane this morning, this chatter was going off in my mind. And my heart slightly sank because I thought, this is actually the same chatter that was going on. I have such strong memories of walking around the lanes. And the same kind of chatter was going on too. And it was all about me, 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 me. And really, you know, is, is my life on track? Is, is, are, are things good enough? And the, the precise content has changed over time, but the, the fundamental preoccupation is still the same. And there was maybe a little more space in it this morning than before, and a little more, you know, awareness of the other things that were going on. But the thing that I noticed that was really different was that actually I recognized that this chatter was happening and I recognized how painful it was um, and it, that it was just creating a sense of anxiety and unhappiness and things. And I actually stopped and thought, okay, you know, I can just be kind to this that's happening 
rather than berating myself for, oh, you know, you've been meditating all these years and this shouldn't be happening anymore. And so I was just noticing it and actually taking a moment to say, this hurts. And can I, can I be kind to it? So we're spending lots of time in silence and there's lots of opportunity to notice the ways that we talk to ourselves. And uh, I remember the first time, I think it when I was maybe a week or so after I became a, a novice nun um, for the first time, and I did something. So somebody was talking about accidentally having picked up somebody at a blanket that they hadn't realized belonged, belonged to somebody else earlier. And it was a similar situation that I, I gave away something that actually belonged to somebody else. It was a kind of a complex, complicated story, but the, uh, the nutshell was that I gave away a box of chocolates that had been given to a nun. And if you're a nun, getting a box of chocolates that you could give to your mum for a Christmas present or something is a big deal. And I, through misunderstanding, gave them away to somebody else and then had this conversation with this nun. And I, was, I felt terrible. And I was saying, you know, I'm so stupid. and blah, blah, blah. I can't remember exactly what I was saying, but words to that effect. And she said wait a minute, would you talk to me like that? And nobody had ever pointed that out to me before. It was a real sort of wake-up moment. And then she, she actually recommended that I listen to a talk by Ajahn Suchito that he'd given a few years before. He was one of our teachers. And, um, and I recently found uh, an excerpt from this talk again in somebody's mindfulness teaching book. So um, I thought I might read a bit of it. Because it was just, you know, this, this kind of really impacted me at that particular time. And he's also talking about his relationship to pain and discomfort in his meditation, which is something I've heard a few people mention today. So this is called The Mangy Dog. So first of all, he's talking about having this terrible pain in his right shoulder whenever he was sitting for a long time. And he really tried all the things that we've been, you know, encouraging you today about sitting with it and making space around it and, um, you know, moving towards it and making friends with it. And nothing had worked. Um, so then one day he says, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it. This is the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. So then there's pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle, wriggle. And then he sort of thinks halfway through, oh, why on earth did I say that? What about the middle way? And then hours go by, two or three hours and three hours and a minute and four hours. And then he was so sick of the pain. He said, my mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly to it, kill it, and came back to, oh, my God, this pain. And then he said, finally, it changed. It got tired out, I guess. Ignorance doesn't get tired. It has to take a break. Or ignorance does get tired, and it has to take a break. Ignorance comes from the same root as ignoring Instead of ignoring or repressing the pain, I actually began to open to it without the, oh, let's open to it and make it go away, or let's open to it and maybe that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. But he just said, oh, all right. And then I began to feel the sensations throbbing away, and I began to feel a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing. And then because of the choice that I pay attention to it, I began to notice that there was also this terrible kind of no, no feeling going on. The whole bitterness towards the body and bitterness towards the pain, a kind of moaning mind. As I focused on the sensations, it became clear to me that although there was nothing I could do about the sensations, I could stop beating my body with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and kickings that this mind had imposed upon this life, upon this body, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. I felt as though my whole system was some kind of mangy dog that had never really been loved. 
and it had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, a vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf looking at me and saying, how long are you going to keep beating me? And I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something reached out from me to this creature and started to pat it and say, please forgive me. And this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing, me and the pain. And then the whole thing dissolved. Very gently, it disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. So I, you know, I come back to that because that struck me at a particular time in my life. I come back to that and think, you know, am I, am I beating myself up like this mangy dog at the moment? And you might also ask yourself that question sometimes. You know, how, how are you responding to yourself on this retreat? How are we coaching ourselves through the difficult times on the retreat? Yeah, and how would you, is, it, is there something different in the way that you would talk to a friend? Because we have this mistaken belief that if we're soft on ourselves, then we're not going to get anything done. And this is not, this is not the truth. Sometimes when we start to, to open to our own suffering, it can feel like things are getting a lot worse. It's like we kind of open the door with our kindness and our compassion on something. And um, it, just, it just suddenly seems that everything comes up back at us. And an uh, uh, image for this that I've also found really helpful is um, the image of backdraft, which I, I gather that there was a kind of... A, disaster movie or something called backdraft which some of you might have seen but it's it's this phenomenon that happens in firefighting and so on when if you if you suddenly open a door on a fire and you let in a lot of air the fire that's needing oxygen to feed itself will just suddenly whoosh. so firemen are taught to be to really check very carefully when they're entering a burning building you know to see um, so that you don't suddenly flood it with oxygen and this is what can kind of happen in our, in our practice too, as we start turning towards our difficulties and turning towards ourselves with kindness, that um, it can, you know, suddenly it's like the floodgates open. So we, we have to do this very carefully in an unhurried way. And it's okay to open it a little bit and close it a little bit. And, you know, maybe sometimes we need to distract ourselves or do something different. So to really give ourselves permission to open and close and kind of titrate our approach to difficulty in a certain way. And, you know, ironically or maybe unexpectedly, I think that treating ourselves as we aspire to treat others, it actually lessens the sense of self-preoccupation so we can think if I'm, if I'm really, you know, spend a lot of energy or interest being kind to myself, I'm going to be more self-obsessed and more preoccupied. But actually, the more we can um, connect with our common humanity, actually, there, there's something um, very humble in that, hum, humble in acknowledging that I'm as worthy a recipient of my kindness as everybody else. And actually, then that, that sense of self-separation and, and the, the kind of crystallization of self-identity actually dissolves a little. So we can intentionally cultivate an attitude of, of kindness. And tomorrow, maybe we'll do some, um, some kind of meta-meditation to. There are many ways that we can intentionally cultivate kindness, and one of that is through um, meta meditation. But also just having this, this orientation, this recollection in the mind. So the Buddha said that 
greater than making the most elaborate of sacrifices or elaborate of offerings to holy beings is to cultivate loving kindness even for the time it takes to snap your fingers. Can't do a finger snap. So he says, monks, if just for the time of a finger snap, a monk or we could say a practitioner produces a thought of loving kindness, develops it, gives attention to it, such a one is rightly called a practitioner. Not in vain do they meditate. They act in accordance with the Buddha's teaching. They follow his advice, and the monk eats deservingly the country's alms food. How much more so if you cultivate and develop it? So we can cultivate it with the intentional thinking of kind thoughts and the use of kind speech and also through actions because thoughts often follow actions. So you might have had this experience yourself of intentionally doing something kind for somebody even if you're actually feeling quite aversive to this person. It can be quite an interesting thing if you're feeling cross or frustrated with somebody to do something nice for them and just see what that does to your feeling towards them, let alone to their feeling towards you. But I just, I had a, recently um, somebody I knew in the States knew I was coming from England and had a particular kind of tea that she really liked that you could only get in the UK. And she said, could I get me, could I get her some tea? And she was a friend, but not somebody, you know, I didn't have, she, she wasn't a close friend or and, but I just noticed as I sort of undertook this little project for her and got the tea and everything, I, I suddenly started feeling this real sense of warmth and affection and connection with her just from this little action. And it was, there was no intention, I'm now going to start practicing kindness for this person or whatever, but just um, undertaking something like that, it kind of turned my mind in a certain direction. And you might have had experiences of that yourself. So this is um, in the in the Metta Sutta, which is the Buddha, Buddha's words on loving kindness, the most um, commonly recited and reflected upon teaching on Metta. He says that we should sustain this recollection, and this is the he uses the word sati again. So this 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 sati, this recollection or this mindfulness of loving kindness should be sustained. And the word for sustained is aditeya, which is related to the, it's the word for a vow or a determination. So like that we should, we can practice this determination to remember um, this orientation of mindful, of, of kindness. And that this could become part of our mindfulness practice, I feel. And that doesn't mean that that's always what we're going to feel or experience, but we just have this, we can set an intention. And then we learn, you know, we learn kindness and compassion through really the experience of seeing things as they are. So uh, I was tempted to read a poem and I haven't got it with me and I won't read it, but those of you, I know lots of you have done mindfulness and on mindfulness courses, there's a poem that's often read by Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. And it basically says that you know, when, you've, when you've encountered enough suffering in life, then kindness becomes the only thing that makes sense anymore. And I think um, a lot of people, a lot of us find that this is true. So we learn it by actually seeing things as they are. And just by doing this practice of mindfulness, we're becoming more sensitive and more intimate with experience and more in touch with our vulnerability and also aware of that other people are no different from us. I think that's one of, I feel that's one of the great privileges of doing what I do is that you meet so many people and you hear so many, so many stories and you, you, you all, many of you have this experience in your lives and your work and in the groups that we have when we, we, get together on these kinds of retreats and you realize oh you know other people I'm not so different from other people you know we all struggle in these ways and this is a this is a way that you know our kindness and our compassion grow so in a way there's a positive feedback loop between this being present with what is 
seeing things as they are, being less phased by suffering and more understanding of it. And so you know, metta and mindfulness kind of feed one another. So there are benefits to developing metta, the Buddha said. He says, if the, if the liberation of mind by loving kindness is developed and cultivated, frequently practiced, made one's vehicle and foundation firmly established, consolidated and properly undertaken, then various benefits may be expected. So these include sleeping peacefully, having no bad dreams, being dear to humans and to non-humans, and being protected by the devas, which are the Buddhist spirits or angels. Fire, poison, and weapons can't injure you, and your mind will become easily concentrated, and your face will be serene. You will look beautiful. You'll die unconfused, and your heart will be at peace. So these are benefits to the development of metta. So I just, you know, I wanted to highlight this, this quality or this dimension of um, our cultivation of the mind and the heart um, tonight because uh, it's a really kind of inseparable, I think, part of the, part of this, uh, this, uh, this awareness actually that we're developing and it's also the case that you know different different ones of us have have different propensities and different things speak to us at di at different times so all these things we can we can cultivate um clear seeing we can cultivate calmness and stability of mind we can cultivate a heart of kindness and so on and we may feel that we you know we have more access to one way into this this kind of caring uh, caring mindfulness than others and it doesn't really matter because when we develop one the others will come along with it um, but they're all they're all sort of skillful means or dharma doors we might say that we can we can grow and feed and um, so this is what we're doing and tomorrow um We'll do some, amongst other things, some meta meditation. So I think that's that's all I have to say for now. Um, we've still got a bit of time left, so I'm just wondering whether there are any questions or comments, reflections, either on anything I've said just now or things that have come up during the day that you'd like to use this time for. Mm -hmm. So, did did people hear the question? Yes. To, to replace it. Right, 
<laughs> yeah? Yes. So I think that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, there's in many ways you've answered some of the question yourself and just seeing that the, the ego has a constant drive for, um, for perfection. It's like we want to find some kind of self-narrative or self-story or sense of identity that is kind of going to be safe and secure forever. But actually, as we watch the unfolding of our lives and the sense of self as it arises from moment to moment, it's, it's like a, it's an impossible goal because um, we're never going to... Our, our sense of self really actually... Or, a fixed self only gets created as a story in our mind. Otherwise, there's, it's just a, there's an unfolding flow of experience which we experience as a self. But to, to package it and create an identity, this is just a view. And the view is conditioned. It's dependent on, it's dependent on circumstances and situations. And then things change in our life and the view collapses. And that's... So, this kind of activity, um, the Buddha called unwise attention, it's like thinking constantly, you know, how was I in the past? How am I going to be in the future? Am I okay? Am I, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that we can endlessly get caught in this neurotic pattern. And it's, it's really, it's not going anywhere. And it's stressful and it's uncomfortable so we can then he said wise reflection is noticing what's actually happening right now and this is something said noticing where where suffering is arising and where suffering passes away in the moment but we could also say that is seeing clearly what's actually the situation right now what's happening but i maybe i would also say that you know, there is a time and a place for reflecting on one's life and actually taking stock. And so also there's an encouragement to... Um, one of the... Another teaching is to, to reflect from time to time, you know, how well am I spending my time? Am I using my time wisely? Um, am I developing in the way that I want to develop? And so on. So it's not that we never think about ourselves but it's just we don't want to be hooked into this kind of neurotic you know we want to we want to be able to pick it up and put it down and one of the so you're asking how can we how can we do that part of it is feeling the discomfort of it going on and on and getting just tired of the discomfort and also wise reflection as you would just as you're doing it's like recognizing well this isn't really this isn't really going anywhere and it's not going to go anywhere. So combination of, of wise reflection and experiential investigation in this moment, what's actually happening. Okay, well, let's take some time then for walking meditation and we can meet back at nine o'clock for our last sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.